morning, family. How are you guys doing? All right. I asked some people if it, ah, that was sort of weak. It's raining outside, though. I guess we can, we can grant, grant that there. Um, if you were supposed to go to the herd this morning, if you're a little one and you're supposed to go to the herd this morning, why don't you raise your hand so I can, so I can see, see your hands? All right, there's a, there's a few of you. Our deacon, head deacon there, Kyle Edmiston, was raising his hand. He was going to, not to teach, I'm guessing, right, to go down there. Man, I, I'm so thankful that you're here, you're here with us. So my hope for you this morning, if you are supposed to go to the herd, is Pastor John wants to say a little prayer for you right now. I know this is different from what you normally do, um, but my hope is this, is that as you learn to grow, and hopefully that you come to that place where you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that you will have a desire for the word, to hear the word preached, and we want to teach you and train you um, in that way of what that looks like. So Pastor John just wants to hit pause real quick and pray for you before we get started, that as you sit and listen to me preach the words of Jesus Christ, that Jesus would use those words to even maybe bring some of you to salvation over this, over this month that you're going to spend with us, right? So we're just going to pray for you guys real quick, okay? God, I thank you for these little ones that are going to join us today and the rest of the Sundays in August. My prayer is pretty simple, that you, Father, would ignite your word in the hearts of these little ones, that you would ignite your word in the heart of all of us, that you would cause some of them to respond with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in Jesus as their only hope of salvation. Would you encourage the mommies and the daddies um, that are going to be sitting with these little ones to encourage them to just love Jesus, enjoy Jesus, have fun while they're here with us as they worship and as they hear the word preached. In Christ's name I pray, amen. We're in our second week of our study in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Last week we introduced it, and what we introduced with was some context. So there's an old saying, if you're in the world of real estate, the old saying is this, it's location, location, location. Where your location is, it really, really matters. And when it comes to Bible reading, the saying can go like this. It's context, context, context. You have to know the context of what is going on in the verse you're reading, in the paragraph you're reading, in the chapter you're reading, in the book you're reading, in the New Testament you're reading, in the whole of the Bible where you're reading. Context is really important. And if you remember last week, we introduced three pieces of context that are just crucial. Crucial for us to understand for the entirety of the letter of Paul to the Colossians, but extremely crucial, especially for the thanksgiving that we looked at last week and the prayer that we're going to actually see Paul pray for the believers who are in the city of Colossae. If you remember, the first piece of context we looked at was just Paul himself. Paul says, it's me. I'm an apostle. Jesus Christ has called me to this. I am an apostle. I'm a speaker, a messenger of grace. And so he just comes out and says, this is what Jesus has called me to. It's not something I dreamed up for myself. This is the work of God in my life. That's why I'm talking to you in the way I'm talking to you. He says, I also have ministry partners with me. He talks about Epaphras. He talks about Timothy. He's going to pull in some others as we get to the very end of his letter. But what he says is, this is me, the Apostle Paul, I'm writing to you. The second piece of context was this. He gives us the context of the Colossians themselves. Yes, these were people in a city, in Colossae, but more importantly, they were a people who were in Christ. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. They'd been folded into the family of God because of what Jesus has done in their life. They're faithful brothers. They're remaining faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are saints. They are holy ones. They've been set apart and folded into God's family because they are in Christ. And at the end of verse 2, you see that 
Paul highlights and just really goes to a grand peak where he says, even God our Father, you are recipients of two things from him, grace and peace are yours. You have grace, unmerited favor in Christ because of what God has done, and you now have peace with God the Father, peace for your soul because of what God the Father has done. The last thing we noted was this. It was the context of the letter. And if you remember, Paul has never laid eyes on the believers in Colossae. The church in Colossae was planted by a man named Epaphras. The story goes, Epaphras heard the the, uh, gospel preached to him by the apostle Paul, takes that gospel back to his hometown of Colossae, and in Colossians chapter 4, we see that Epaphras is responsible for planting at least three churches, the church of Laodicea, the church of Hierapolis, and the church in Colossae. And so some time goes by, and what happens is this, is that Epaphras takes that gospel, preaches that gospel, the church is birthed there in Colossae, and then what happens is he goes, eventually bumps into Paul several years later in Rome. Paul is in house arrest. Epaphras comes back to Paul and tells him the good report about the Colossians. They have faith in Christ. They have love for the saints. Their hope is wrapped up in the gospel, and that causes Paul just to explode with thanksgiving, and that's what we looked at last week, to the point where he's always thanking God, he says, for he and Timothy and his ministry partners. But when Epaphras found Paul under house arrest in Rome... Not only did he bring with him a good news report of the faith and the love and the hope that they have grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he also brought a report of something that we call the Colossian heresy. These believers in Colossae were hearing a false teaching. And what it boils down to is this. These these false teachers in Colossae were gospel mathematicians. They were trying to add things to the gospel. Some people were adding things pre-Jesus, saying before you can become a legit Christian, you first need to become a legit Jew. There's no way you can truly trust and rest in Christ by being a pagan or a Gentile and just becoming a Christian. You can't do it. We need to add something to the gospel. And Paul's going to counter that, saying not true. Other people were operating as gospel mathematicians by adding something post-Jesus, where they'd come along and go, yes, Jesus Christ, gospel, good, great. You need, to, you need to anchor yourself in Jesus Christ, but there's no way you can have a true knowledge of Jesus. There's no way you can experience the power of God. There's no way you can experience the fullness, mature as a disciple of Jesus by just Jesus alone. You've got to add some other stuff to it. And Paul's going to come along, and as we see in the next several weeks, Paul's going to counter that false teaching by saying, no, Jesus is supreme and Jesus is entirely sufficient for everything that you need in life. See, these false teachers were undermining the true gospel that was delivered to them by Epaphras by teaching that Christ alone, not enough. They argued that the gospel that was preached to them was junior varsity. Epaphras, yeah, he had a gospel, but JV, freshman squad. If you ever hope to attaining to varsity-level Christianity, you need to add something to to Epaphras. You need to, to have a deeper knowledge. You need to have a better display of power that is found outside of the true gospel that Epaphras brought to you. So in Paul and his thanksgiving was saying, no, Epaphras is a true minister. He's a faithful brother. He brought to you the true gospel. And at the beginning of his thanksgiving, Paul says, we always thankful, pray for you. And when we do so, we're thankful. And now what he's going to do is rewind back to verse 3 and said, remember when I told you that we're always praying for you? Let me actually hit pause and now pray for you. 
And a lot of the themes that we saw in verses 3 through 8 last week are going to find themselves worked into the actual prayer that Paul prays for these brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ in Colossae. Paul is going to connect the power of God in the gospel to the Colossians' growth in knowledge and obedience to Christ. With the background that we just have, Paul is going to turn to these words, from these words of thanksgiving, turn to these words of prayer, and what you're going to see him do is connect the gospel of God and the power of the gospel of God to two things in the Colossians' lives. His hope for their growth in knowledge, knowledge of God's will, and his hope for their obedience in all avenues of life as a response to the knowledge of God's will. What this means for us, you could say it like this. This is, this is Paul's main point, that the gospel of God is the power source behind our growth in knowledge and obedience to Christ. It is God. He is the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith. God is the good news deliverer who qualifies us, delivers us, transfers us. Paul is going to magnify the good news message of the gospel, and Paul is going to teach us that the gospel is the power source that strengthens us and sustains us so that we can with bended knee pray and say, God, I want a deeper knowledge of your will. I want to know you more, not so that I can be a pumpkin head, become a big fat head full of knowledge, but so that my knowledge would produce a walk, a manner of life that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God, bearing fruit in every good work, Increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul's going to break down this main idea that the gospel of God is the power source behind our growth in knowledge and obedience to Christ. He's going to break it down to three ways. God grows, God strengthens, and God redeems. God grows his people through knowledge, God strengthens his people with power, and God redeems his people in Christ. God grows, God strengthens, and God redeems. So grab your copy of Scripture. Look on your iPhone, iPad, there's a copy of Scripture in front of you for you have your own copy. And look at the first two verses in our, in our text this morning. Verses 9 and 10 in Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes this, So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So we can ask the question, praying for what? Praying for this. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But why? For what reason? So that this may come about. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So that you may be fully pleasing to Him. So that you may bear fruit in every good work. And so that you may increase in the knowledge of God. See, up to this point, Paul has mentioned the idea of prayer, and now he turns his attention to actually praying for the Colossians. So from the day he first heard about the Colossians, Paul and his ministry partners have not ceased to pray for them. But if you remember, the problem in Colossae was a group of teachers who were promoting a false teaching that had just enough Scripture, just enough Jesus woven into this false teaching to make it sound like it was legit at first hearing. 
So Paul recognized the temptation that we, that we can fall into to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And so the question then becomes, Paul saying, listen, there's people in your doorstep, there's people in your midst, these people are trying to get you to, yes, adhere to the true gospel, but then to leave the true gospel and go into something else. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, and probably what the Colossian believers were asking themselves is, how can we discern Like, what's our hope of being able to go, okay, this is the true gospel and all that it entails, but this is a half-baked gospel. Because notice what was not happening. These people weren't coming along and going, man, forget the Bible, don't have anything to do with Jesus, follow this. They were coming along with just enough Jesus, just enough religiosity woven into their argument to where it was causing the Colossian believers to step back and go, okay, so they're saying this, it sort of sounds legit on the surface, but Paul is saying, no, what we have is everything that we need in the, in the, the gospel that is Epaphras is preaching. So, so how do we discern between the two? The answer, according to Paul, is this. We are to pray, asking to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, you and I have a desperate need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will through the insight of the Holy Spirit. You and I have a desperate need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will through the insight of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul cares about knowledge. He he says it here. I'm asking that you would be filled with knowledge, to be filled with this, this insight that you need. But he's just not praying for us to be filled with random facts. Like he isn't saying, here's my answer for you in being able to discern between true gospel and half-baked gospel. Go watch Jeopardy, be filled with a bunch of knowledge, and then you'll be able to figure this out. That's not, that's not what he's saying. See, we just don't need more knowledge of stuff. What we need is a knowledge of specifically God's will. So when you touch on the topic of God's will, it is a very deep subject. But at minimum, what Paul is driving at here when he says, I am asking that you be filled with a knowledge of God's will, a knowledge of his will, to know God's will is this. It is to know what God has spoken to us through his scriptures. To know God's will at least at a bare minimum means that. God speaks, God talks, God has revealed himself to us, and he's revealed himself to us through this thing we call the scriptures. And if you want to know what God's will, we can spin out a lot of times going, I don't know what God's will is for my life, and I don't know where I'm supposed to go, and I don't know how I'm supposed to think, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and I don't know what I'm supposed to say. And Paul's just saying, let's let's just scale back for a second. You have the ability to know God's will for your life by having the scriptures here. And so at a minimum, what Paul is saying is this. If you want to know what God's will for you in this, if you want to know what God is saying to you in regard to the true gospel, all you have to do is at least continue reading the rest of my letter that I'm writing to you. And it expands out to include everything from Genesis to Revelation. If you want to know what God's will, what he has spoken to you, what he is saying to you, it is go to the scriptures. But notice that the emphasis in this first verse, verse 9, falls on the word spiritual. I'm asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will, of what God has revealed about himself and about humanity, about the gospel, about Jesus Christ in the scriptures. But then he tags that little phrase on the end. I'm asking for you to be filled with this knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. When you see that word spiritual, it can be hijacked in today's world. Today we have a very weird situation in our culture where a lot of people don't like to be religious, but they like to be spiritual. Wow, that Christianity stuff is not legit, but I'm pretty spiritual. 
is, is sort of how it goes. And what they mean by that is they just like to devise a God of their own making and just live however they want to. But they're just trying to take a very religious sounding word and they stamp it on top of their life. That's not what Paul is talking about here. When you see this word spiritual pop up in scripture, you see it in Galatians 6, you see it here, you see it in other places. What it is, it's spiritual wisdom. It's talking about the idea of the Holy Spirit. So when Paul says, I'm asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will, I'm asking that this wisdom and this understanding needed to be able to discern, God, according to your word, what do you say in this situation? Paul is saying this needs to happen through the avenue of the Holy Spirit, granting insight so you can discern, be wise, understand God's word and what he has revealed about this particular situation. This becomes extremely practical like in all, all of life. Like right, our doctrine of the Holy Spirit, one of the aspects of it is this, is that we come and going, God, like I don't, I don't have the ability within myself just to be able to figure this out. We need you, Holy Spirit, my helper, to come and show me Christ, show me God in this situation. To see that God does have an answer for all situations of life according to his word. And I need wisdom, I need discernment, I need understanding so I can be able to understand this. Wisdom and understanding ultimately come through the inside of the Holy Spirit. And this is really, really good news because the New Testament is stamped all over the place with this fact that the sign and seal that you've actually been born again, that the gospel has been applied to your heart is this, is that you have the Holy Spirit, the very Holy Spirit that Paul is saying you need so he can reveal to you God's will, giving you wisdom, giving you insight. It is the Holy Spirit who helps us to apply God's will in every circumstance that we come across in our day-to-day life. So what do you do when that confusing argument lands in your lap? What do you do when you bump into an opposing idea that on the surface feels right, seems right? Man, it's got just enough Jesus, just enough Scripture mixed in with it. It just starts to cause you to, like, am I wrong? Like, is that person right? Like, I, I know they're, they're quoting some scripture, but it just seems like there's something just anti-Christ woven into this. Like, what is your hope in that moment of being able to discern what is of God and what is not of God? This is where Paul and his prayer step in and just become our example. What you do in that moment and go, oh, oh no. Like, I need something bigger than me. I need the insight of the Holy Spirit into what God has to say concerning this situation. And we can pray to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, resting on the Holy Spirit to provide the necessary wisdom and understanding needed to discern the situation. See, God matures his people through a knowledge of his will. Notice that God, or notice that Paul goes on in verse 10. So what Paul's going to do now is connect prayer to action. A prayer for knowledge to obedience to that knowledge. Notice what Paul does not say. He does not say, listen, I'm praying that you'd be filled with the knowledge of his will. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would grant wisdom and understanding so that you can become incredibly full of knowledge and be people who do absolutely nothing with it. That's not what he says. In Scripture, over and over again, you always see this. A right knowledge leads to right behavior. A good and right understanding of God's will according to the scriptures is always the fuel for obedience to what we know to be true and right concerning God himself. So when Paul prays that we be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual understanding, he turns and connects it 
saying, I am praying this way so that we would be a people who walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, God's desire for His people is that they would grow through knowledge of His will and grow in obedience. The knowledge of God and His will are extremely practical. Extremely practical. So when God speaks, there's nothing mind-boggling going on in verse 10. He says, I'm praying that you know God so that you can just walk and live your life in a way that reflects the gospel that has come to you. I want your life to be filled with delight that leads to a God-glorifying duty. Right? Delight in the gospel fuels duty for God. The danger is when we just sort of buckle down and just start gritting our teeth and just we become duty people. Duty people are laborious to be around because they're legalists. They're not fun to be around. Why are you doing it? Because I'm supposed to. They're just sort of buckled over and they're stooped over with the own weight of their law upon their shoulders. We don't want to be just a duty-driven people, but we don't want to be people who are so delighting in the glory of God that it doesn't lead us to this place. So I, don't want, I don't want us to be a people who delight in God and go, this is great, but we don't do anything that looks like it's manifesting externally our delight in God. Paul is connecting our delight in God which fuels and leads to a life of duty for God. I want you to know God so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. See, God is fully pleased when our external actions line up with the inward reality of the gospel which marks us. God is fully pleased when our faith in Christ bears fruit in every good work. God is pleased when the gospel of Christ spurs us on to increase in the knowledge of God who saved us. So by God's grace, our lives should reflect positively on God. That's really what Paul is pointing the Colossians to. I want you guys to live in such a way where the true gospel that you have received, which gave birth to your faith, your love, and your hope, I want it to reflect positively on God to be fully pleasing to him. Jesus Christ is worthy of lives that reflect his infinite value. And it is exactly to this end for which Paul prays. So not only does God grow his people with knowledge of his will, but the second thing we see is this. God strengthens his people with power. God strengthens his people with power. So in your copy of scripture, look at verse 11. Paul follows up his prayer with, for knowledge of God's will with another prayer. I am praying in this way. I have not ceased to pray for you that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. God strengthens his people with power. See, what I love about verse 11 is that it shows that Paul is a realist. Discerning God's will by the Spirit... And then walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord is hard, and Paul knows this. Like, that's what I love. So what Paul doesn't do is say, listen, I'm praying that you be filled with the knowledge of his will. I'm praying that your life would be marked by bearing fruit and increasing and being pleasing and walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And I sure hope you guys figure this out. It's incredibly hard. I have no idea how you're going to do it. I'm not even sure why I'm writing this in the first place. Like, you, you don't get that from Paul. But Paul is saying, yes, I want you to delight in the glories of our Savior. 
And I want that to produce a duty that is just joyful, marked with thanksgiving because of who we are in Christ. And I want you to know that the power to be able to live a life in this way is found entirely not within you. It's found in somewhere else. Living lives which bear spiritual fruit does not come easily to men and women who are prone to wander from God and rest in prideful self-reliance. The strength to do what God calls us to do never rests in our power, but it always rests fully in God's power. And God makes this clear in two ways. The first thing he says is this, God strengthens us with his power. That's what Paul writes. The first part of verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power. May you be strengthened with all power. Notice that Paul does not call us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get with the program. Paul's prayer for the knowledge of God's will, which leads to obedience, necessarily brings with it a prayer that we may be strengthened with power. I love how he connects the two. There's no division there. One tags on the the coattails of the other. I'm praying for you to be filled with knowledge, and I'm simultaneously praying for you to be strengthened with power so that you can live out life in right accord with this knowledge that I'm praying for you. See, prayer and power are intimately connected, and God acts this way according to his glorious might. God has wired it so that when we pray for knowledge of God's will, we will simultaneously pray to be strengthened with all power, all of God's power, so that according to God's glorious might, God would get the glory in equipping us to be able to live in the way that he has called us to live. Paul is effectively praying with redundancy. So if you look in verse 11, that word strengthened, a synonymous word could be empowered. When you look at that word might, another word we could substitute in there is power. So a paraphrase of verse 11 could sound something like this. May you be empowered with all power according to God's glorious power. It's like, I think Paul wants me to pick up on something here, right? I think he's saying is that in God, there's an infinite fountain of power. And because we're in Christ, that means we are in a right relationship with God. And what we have at our disposal is the empowering power of God's glorious power. And Paul is saying this as a piece of encouragement for us. Paul's point is simply reinforcing the magnitude of what is available to us from God when we ask him. So God strengthens with his power, but also God sustains us with his power. And you see that in that last little phrase. Paul prays that we be strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience. The ability to be able to have endurance and patience means we need to be sustained. Endurance is persevering in the face of difficult circumstances. The idea of patience refers to steadfastness that does not retaliate against those who oppose us. So when the going gets tough, when the suffering comes your way, when the trial lands in your lap, what is your hope of being able to live a life worthy of Christ in that way? Paul doesn't say when the going gets tough, hey man, just rely on yourself. After all, who else do you got? When he says when the going gets tough, when suffering and trial and hardship and that, that hard conversation and that, that, that unpleasant thing at work comes your way, what your hope is, is found in the sustaining power of God. Paul's point is simple. You and I are in desperate need of God's power. It is not within us to live the Christian life. We need somebody to empower us 
with the necessary grace, with the necessary power to be able to live as Paul, by, by the Holy Spirit, calls us to live. So my question for you is, do you find yourself praying for God's power in your life, or do you find yourself habitually drifting to just sort of getting through and getting by, resting in your own power? See, one of the obstacles to not living in the power that God supplies is that we've bought into the lie that we can just strengthen and sustain ourselves. After all, we're Americans, right? I don't need you. You don't need me. Independence reigns. Individualism is highly touted. And what we do is we miscarry that into the, by carrying it into the church. And what we do is we buy into the lie that when the going gets tough, I don't need you and I don't want you to need me. You can go have yourself, fix yourself in the corner, and then come back. And then when you're fixed and you're good and you're well and you've gotten your problems solved, and then what we can do is then we can start talking. But Paul absolutely repudiates that idea. Paul calls us to not rest in our own strength, thinking we can sustain ourselves on our own. So when we buy into that lie, what we're doing is we're effectively taking our eyes off of Christ and we are turning them to ourselves. We lose sight of our gospel identity in Christ as a people who need Christ every hour for everything. And Paul's aim in pointing us to the strengthening and sustaining power of God is for us to kill self-reliance and grow ever more dependent in Christ-reliance. In short, Paul is saying here in verse 11 that God's power is sufficient for you. Where you find yourself right now, for the trial, for the suffering, for the good, for the bad, no matter where you are at, your life right now, God's power is sufficient for that very task that is popping into your mind right in this minute. What Paul is teaching is that there is no addiction God's power cannot break. That no sin God's power cannot defeat. There's no task to which we are called that God's power cannot fulfill. No fruit we are called to bear that God's power cannot produce. No rebellious child God's power cannot restore. No broken marriage God's power cannot reconcile. No physical disease God's power cannot heal. It is for this reason Paul calls this whole idea God's glorious might. And so what Paul does is say, okay, I know I've just said a bunch of stuff and maybe you don't believe me. So let me just give you an example in your world of God's glorious power fully on display in your life. And what he does is he turns to verses 12 through 14. So when you read this prayer, verses 9 and 10 make sense. I'm praying for a knowledge of God's will. Hey, you need help with the Holy Spirit. I get that. And he says, I want this knowledge not to make you a big fat head. I want this knowledge to lead to practical external obedience. It's like, I get that. You get to verse 11, and he says, after all, this is going to be really hard. Let me encourage you. You're going to really need the power of God. It's like, hey, I get that. And all of a sudden, he's just like talking about being qualified and being delivered and being transferred. It's like, what's, what's the relation of verses 12 through 14 to everything that's gone before? I think the relation is this. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, takes these believers, takes you and I to the place. He goes, listen, let me give you the most astounding display of God's power that you will ever possibly know in your life. And it is this, your redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. The very fact that you, as a former sinner, hell-bound, running away from God, find yourself in a saving relationship in Christ is the power of the gospel on display in your life. 
And if God can save you, and if God can display his power in you, then surely God is capable of sustaining you. Surely God is capable of strengthening you. Surely God is capable of granting the right knowledge that you need so that you can understand his will according to scripture. Surely the Holy Spirit is fully capable of granting the insight that we need for wisdom and understanding to be able to walk in a life that is fully pleasing to God. See, no other action of God towards his creation displays his power like the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Romans 1.16. The gospel of the cross is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So in these last three verses, we find a portrait of what gospel power looks like. Nowhere does Paul say, fix yourself that you, so you can have redemption. Nowhere. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say, you want salvation? Fix yourself. Never happens. Rather, what we have is a picture of man's complete weakness and total inability to save himself, contrasted against God's complete power and total ability to save us. So what you see is that God's power is displayed in the way he has qualified us. This is verse 12. With joy, we are to give thanks to the Father. Why? Because it is God the Father himself who has qualified you, who has qualified me, who has qualified the Colossians to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, there's a difference between being unqualified and being disqualified. Very nuanced, huge difference. To be unqualified means that you and I lack certain skills or sufficient education to fulfill a task. So if I'm unqualified to be the governor of the state of Illinois because I don't have the right education, I don't have the right training, I don't have a law degree, I've never been in politics, what that doesn't mean is I can never ever be governor. I just, I'm unqualified. So I go to school, I get a degree, I learn some things, learn politics better, and then I would be qualified and then I can go and run for governor for the state of Illinois. That's the idea of being unqualified. But to be disqualified means something different. It means that I am unfit for a task. I am excluded because of a specific failure or behaviors that prove me to be morally unworthy of some high office or responsibility. So I am disqualified from being the governor if I'm a habitual liar, I embezzle money, I have no integrity, and I'm constantly operating shady deals behind the back door that would cause me to be thrown in prison. Those things disqualify me. Unqualified and disqualified. Similar, but a little bit different. So the question that becomes this, according to the scriptures, are sinners merely unqualified to share in the inheritance of the saints, or are they disqualified? Sam Storms helps us with this quote. He says this, you and I, in our natural sinful state, apart from divine grace, are not merely unqualified for the kingdom of God, but we are profoundly disqualified. It's not as if God says to us, if only you could perform this task or solve that problem or answer some question, then I would grant you entrance to my kingdom. Rather, he says to us, by nature and choice, you are the kind of person who is prohibited from entering my kingdom. You think of thoughts and commit deeds that warrant exclusion from my presence. It's not simply that you would be admitted if you could just do this or do that, but you are excluded because you are the moral and spiritual antithesis of what is required of any who would share my fellowship. 
The scriptures are replete that the New Testament, the Old Testament comes to us, is that because we are born in sin, conceived in sin, because we have been birthed out of flesh, marked by being people who are in the domain of darkness, we are profoundly disqualified. And we need somebody with the power to move us from the realm of being disqualified into the realm of being qualified. And it's thanks be to God that it is he himself who takes disqualified sinners and qualifies them to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. God does this by redeeming us in Christ. God does this by forgiving our sins in Christ. God does this by clothing us with the righteousness of Christ. You see this in 1 Corinthians 1. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You see this in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What you need is to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And we are disqualified to be able to do that on our own. We need somebody to clothe us, to qualify us, to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. Storms, once again, says, whatever deeds may have disqualified us, for those of us who are in Christ, what you need to know is this, is that they are forever forgiven. God now says to those who are in Christ, when you were once disqualified, you are now qualified. You are forgiven. You are adequate in Jesus. You are righteous in my son. So come, receive, enjoy your inheritance with all the saints in the life-giving, soul-cleansing light of my kingdom. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the power of God on display. When Paul goes off and gives us one of the most famous verses in Romans 1.16 where he says, the power of God is the gospel because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ which changes people, which saves people, which rips them out of the domain of darkness and plants them into the kingdom of the beloved Son. This is the power of God on display. It's in the qualification of God's people that God's power is displayed. The last thing that Paul says is this, that God's power is displayed in the way that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. See, on our own, we are in bondage to Satan and his domain. His dominion is exercised over us, and because of this, sinners fall under his authority. Satan's dominion is characterized by intellectual, moral, and spiritual darkness. No matter how hard anyone tries on their own to remove themselves from the domain of darkness, it just can't be done. It can't be done. You cannot self-extract yourself out of the kingdom of Satan. can't do it. We are powerless to extract ourselves. In the realm of spiritual matters, there is no hope of self-extraction. What we need is a powerful sin-canceling, gospel-triumphing Christ extraction. And the only way to go from dark to light, the only way to move from the domain of darkness and be transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son is by the power of God alone displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The verbiage found in verse 13 when he says he's delivered us and he's transferred us, it really comes from like a gardening aspect. So like if I have a plant living in some bad soil, but it's dying in this bad soil, but I have some good soil over here. What I don't do is come up to the plant and go, hey, uh, uproot yourself, please, and move over here into the good. Like, you don't do that. 
The only way that plant is going to be delivered from that bad and to be transferred, transplanted into the good is for the gardener to extract the plant, uproot it, transplant it into the good. That plant receives the good soil only by the goodness of the gardener enacting upon it, uprooting, transplanting. The very same similar idea is happening when Jesus, through Paul, is speaking to us saying, the way you move from being delivered in the domain of darkness is by being uprooted, being transplanted, by being transferred by God himself who has qualified you, transplanting you into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's in the deliverance and the transference of God's people that God's power is displayed. So from these verses, 9 through 14, the gospel of God is the power source behind our growth in knowledge and obedience to Christ. So how do we respond to this? What's our call to action in light of what we've just heard from these verses? Boils down to this, two things. First, for some of you, you may be new to Christianity. Maybe you're just trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing out. Maybe you're here just trying to think through. You're on a journey. What's this Jesus guy about? What's his message about? What, what does this mean? How am, I supposed to, how am I supposed to think about Christ? So maybe for the first time you find yourself in church, and for the first time God is showing you that you need Jesus and the salvation he offers you. And for the first time you may be really realizing that none of what we've talked about this morning applies to you because for the first time you're realizing, I'm not really a Christian. Like, when I hear these verbs that keep popping up, this idea of me being qualified, me being delivered, me being transferred, me being redeemed, me being forgiven, like, those aren't true of me. I can't say that I have been qualified by God. And what God is doing right now is working in your heart, revealing this thing to you. And so this morning, my call to you is to see your need of Christ. What we're not going to do is ask you, Good, I'm so glad you see this need. Now go off and fix yourself. According to the scriptures, what Paul is saying is this. Yes, if God is showing you that you are not qualified, not delivered, not transferred, don't go try to fix yourself. Run to the one who has the power to qualify you, to transfer you, to deliver you. So the call this morning is for you to see your need and flee to Christ, to run to Christ, cast yourself on Christ, run to him and the power that he exhibits in his qualifying work. He alone is the one who can make you right with the Father. The other call to action is for those of us who are believers. So if you have been qualified, delivered, transferred, redeemed, forgiven, you hear these scriptures, one temptation might be to go, ooh boy, the gospel's true. It's been applied. I've been obedient to the gospel. I've repented and I've believed. But I don't see often the power of God in my life. Actually, I'm not even praying for the power of God in my life. I'm definitely not walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Uh, my life, I'm quite sure, is not fully pleasing to Him. I don't often bear fruit, and I'm not doing much good work, and I don't find myself increasing in the knowledge of God. The Holy Spirit seems to be absent. I don't know that I'm operating with wisdom and understanding and this idea of being filled with the knowledge of God's will, I sort of battle with even wanting to be in God's word to see that happen. Like that's a legit place that some of us, most of us probably are. 
I don't have any answer for you. Fix yourself. See you guys next week. No. The same answer for the unbeliever is the same answer for you. It's the gospel of grace. Paul in this moment goes, man, listen, uh, this thing is hard. What is your hope of walking in a Christ-like way, fully pleasing to God the Father? It's not by you buckling down and making yourself better by somehow fixing yourself and bootstrapping your way through this thing. It's God speaking through the Apostle Paul saying, it is Christ himself. It's not reach down a little deeper and conjure up some more strength to knuckle through. Hey, really reach down deep into your heart so you can sustain yourself. The answer from our scripture this morning is you're actually called to do quite the opposite. Don't buckle down. Actually, just let go. Don't try to conjure up the necessary grace on yourself so you can get this thing done. It's flee to the finished work of Christ and the power of his gospel. See, really what it boils down to is, for whether we're a believer or unbeliever, is to almost go back to verse 14 and read our text in reverse. Because when you read your te- this text in reverse, what you get is this. Paul basically saying, the gospel of God is really, really good. And the gospel of God is your hope. The gospel of God is found in Christ. The necessary grace, the fount of never-ending grace is found in the God who is qualified, delivered, and transferred. Because that's true. And the power that he displays in your salvation is the same power that's available for you to be strengthened and sustained. Therefore, standing on that platform, what you do is go, God, I need a knowledge of you of your will in the scriptures. Holy Spirit, help me to live out the gospel of Christ in my life. So the answer isn't reach down deeper into you. The answer is flee to Christ. For the believer and for the unbeliever, the answer is the hope of Christ. The fountain of grace that is yours in Christ. Reach deep. Drink deep. Swim in it. Get lost in it. Go for a dive, soak it up, and there you will find the necessary grace to live as God calls you to live. What you're going to see is that this is just so stinking foundational. Because he's going to turn next week and he's going to lift up Christ. It's one of the most highest forms of Christ exaltation that you're going to see in all of Scripture next week. Verses 15 through 20. This is the launch pad. I mean, if you think Paul's excited about being qualified, delivered, and transferred like... Baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. Like next week, he's going to take Christ and he's going to strap him in a rocket and he's going to shoot Christ into the atmosphere and we're just going to stand back in awe and glory of Christ and he's going to take Christ right back to, you've been redeemed. He's going to turn and say, this motivates my ministry for you. This motivates my ministry for the church. And this all is going to become him taking and scooping all of these ideas up and saying, see Jesus entirely supreme in creation, entirely supreme in redemption. Therefore, Christ alone is worthy. He is the sufficiency that you need to live life. That is the book of Colossians. And Paul is laying the foundation work for us here in his thanksgiving and in his prayer. So how do we respond? As the band comes, Tom's going to come up here and he's going to, to lead us in our act of communion. Your response is this. Some of you probably just need to just bend your knee and pray. Some of you probably don't need to stand up and sing. Some of you just need to respond and go, I've been trying to go this thing alone. Sustaining and strengthening myself. This is a time for you to repent. To say, God, I am sorry that I have not been tapping into the gospel 
of grace, the power of God that is available for me for those, those who ask. For some of you, this might be a time just to rejoice and to exalt in the glorious power of the gospel. For some of you, it's going to be singing. For some of you who are believers, it's going to be taking of the Lord's Supper. If you need to ask a question or if you would like some prayer, I'll be in the back. Any of the other pastors can answer those prayers. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray for us now that we would respond to Jesus in a way that Jesus is calling us to, that even right now we would respond in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, not assuming that if God is calling you to go seek out somebody, if God is calling you to to uh, pray in a certain way, if God is calling you to go talk to somebody in a certain way, that, eh, that I can be fully pleasing to God later, but that now, today would be the day that you would respond to God in obedience. Okay? Let's pray. God, my prayer for my brothers and sisters in Christ is that what we would do is we would see the grandeur of Christ this morning. Take these words from Paul's prayer and truly this morning, would we be strengthened with power according to God's glorious might God would you fill us with the knowledge of God's will so that we could walk in a manner worthy of the Lord God empower us to leave this place this morning to go walk into the world all of next week manifesting Christ and the glories of the gospel living in a way that is fully pleasing to him in Jesus I pray amen